Numbers chapter 29 as we continue our way through the book of Numbers together. As we come into this section now, of course, the children of Israel on the border of the promised land as we began to see in chapter 28, which sort of connects to the 29th chapter where we pick up this evening. Uh, God at this point is now beginning to sort of instruct the younger generation regarding worship and wanting to uh, give to them a very clear understanding as they now, in a sense, will be the ones to go in and to possess the promised land. Uh, The older generation has done off and so some of the things that we have studied earlier on in Exodus and Leviticus God is now reiterating here in these particular chapters as we close out the book of numbers at the end of the wilderness wandering because he wants the next generation this younger generation to understand what it means to worship God and how to worship God so uh, at this point he's beginning to give to them some instructions of things that have already been taught to the prior generation about the sacrifice and the scheduled times of worship we saw in chapter 28 last week that there were prescribed ways and times in which they were to worship that there were daily offerings uh, at the start of each day and at the close of each day there were scheduled times of sacrifice and offering and then there of course were the weekly occasions scheduled times of worship to honor the Sabbath and the sacrifices and so forth that went along with that then as well that there were monthly scheduled times at the beginning of each month no matter how the last month had been you began each new month looking to the Lord and in a sense if the last month was bad well then okay it's the start of a new month and let's consecrate this month to God and there were monthly sacrifices and then of course as we began to look at the end of the chapter it began to address then some of the annual festivals or some of the annual feasts and uh, we looked particularly at the uh, feast that took place in the spring in chapter 28 And as we come into chapter 29, we'll now look at three of the fall feasts that were annual celebrations. And we said last time, again, just for sake of uh, refresher, these annual festivals or feasts first given to us back in Leviticus chapter 23 were basically uh, times, scheduled appointments that God asked them to put on their calendar to step away from the routine, the regular activities, the hard work, the maintaining of their household, affairs and and to just schedule and put into their calendars times of worship to just spend time with God and in a disciplined way to make time for God and we talked last week as well in relation to how the heart of God with his people was not that they would just live their lives and operate their own schedules and then just fit God in where he had in a sense an opportunity well okay I think we can afford a half hour here so we'll slip God into our schedule but instead God was saying no I want you to build your schedule around me and then fit in other things where they fit and God was showing them a different way than oftentimes as we said many times we live a lot of times people live their lives and they just fit God in when they can fit him in you know if after we have this and that and then whenever we can just fit God in okay we'll fit him in periodically and God was saying the exact opposite no build your life around me schedule your life around me and then whenever you have time for other things okay you can add and supplement them and and God here had this way of daily weekly monthly annually giving to them these occasions of scheduled worship to refocus their attention. And those festivals and feasts were also, we said, used as memory aids. They were teaching tools. 
uh, as they would reflect on something that had happened in their history with God, as they would re refresh their memories of God's love and God's faithfulness and uh, would have these annual times where they could remind themselves of aspects of God's goodness and faithfulness. Uh, and they were times of instruction and education as well with their young people to explain to them exactly what they were celebrating so as we come to chapter 29 now we looked at the spring feast which involved passover and unleavened bread and the feast of uh, weeks or the feast of pentecost now chapter 29 gives to us the three feasts that would take place in the fall months uh, that would be around the september october time frame the first one we see there in chapter 29 verse 1 he says, and in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, so the very beginning of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall do no customary work. So again, it was a time of refraining from their affairs, their labor. And again, these were, uh, you know, again, an agrarian society. These were hardworking people by no means, you know, is God endorsing laziness or not hard work, but God showing that there's a balance between work and worship. Uh, and, and so God asked them to refrain on these occasions from their customary work. He says, verse one, for it is to be noticed a day, a marked day on that first day of the seventh month of the blowing uh, of the trumpets and you shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year. Again, these animals without blemish as we've talked about types of Christ, no inherent sin, uh, no acquired sin. They were pure and unblemished animals, pictures of Jesus. And the grain offering, of course, with that, the fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull and two-tenths for the ram, one-tenth for each of the seven lambs and also one kid of the goats as a sin offering to make atonement for you besides the burnt offering with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offering according to their ordinance, a sweet aroma and offering made by fire to the Lord. So again, take notice, these things that would happen, they were in addition still to the other offerings. So those daily offerings, morning and evening, they weren't to be foregone uh, during these times on these special days of celebration. They were still to observe those things. But besides those things, these were occasions where there were special sacrifices and times of worship that were reserved. This one here referred to in chapter 29 verses uh, 1 and 2 here is often what we refer to as the Feast of Trumpets. You notice there in the first verse, uh, he refers to it as a day of the blowing of the trumpets uh, in Jewish culture this is often referred to as Rosh Hashanah uh, or what is often a term for the head of the year this marked the beginning of the civil year for the Jews uh, and again important to understand with the Jews they had a religious calendar and then they had a civil calendar and you say well that's crazy so wh why are you on the seventh month celebrating the beginning of the new year that's you know don't you celebrate the beginning of the new year on the first month i mean well this was the beginning or the new year's day of their civil year they had a civil year and a religious there in some ways you know in our culture if you think we somewhat do the same thing we have new years january 1st we call the beginning of the new year but then we start what our school year 
in September. So in, in a similar way, we have the beginning of a year that kind of, in a sense, takes place at two different times. So they had a civil year. They had a religious calendar. This marked the beginning of the civil new year. And it was a time where trumpet blasts uh, were, were given through the shofar, or the ram's horn. And this was an occasion when these trumpet blasts were given to sort of call the people together and the idea of this was to prepare for upcoming events particularly the day of atonement that was just on the horizon as well as the feast of tabernacles which also would happen all within this one month so it was marked you notice by the blowing of trumpets blasts that would be used the shofar horn would be blown and these blasts were to sort of signal or to indicate that the people were to gather together they were a gathering uh, through the trumpets and to prepare for what was coming on the horizon. And of course, as we look at this, it's very interesting that in the New Testament, when the Bible speaks of the rapture of the church, as we refer to it as the or the catching away of the saints, when Jesus uh, does not descend and touch down upon the earth, but where he descends to the place in the sky where he says he calls us up to meet the Lord in the air, what we call the catching away of the saints, the harpazo or the, the rapture that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15 it's referred to that something connected to that will be the trump of God. Uh, and then in the same way, and again, as we've talked about before, how many of these feasts pictured and foreshadowed things that are fulfilled in Christ, it seems very likely that this is how the fulfillment of this feast will find itself, that the trump of God in the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, will be where this finds its fulfillment ultimately. So the next feast or next festival, if you would, I guess we could refer to it, verse 7, that would happen on this fall season was then on the 10th day you see verse 7 there on the 10th day of that seventh month so 10 days later you shall have a holy convocation you shall afflict your souls notice not afflict your bodies afflict your souls the idea here is is, is an inward repentance a, a searching within oneself uh, it, it referred to repentance of the soul examining the heart and again you shall not do any work you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma, one young bull and a ram, seven lambs in their first year. And again, be sure, notice the emphasis, be sure they are without blemish. So there was no leniency in this. There was a particular required sacrifice that God demanded and particularly for this event because this event is referring to what we call as the Day of Atonement. Uh, a day that, again, the Jews refer to as Yom Kippur. Uh, originally, we saw this back in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, this was that one, we refer to it as a, in somewhat of a high holy day, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, when together with the sacrifices described here, there specifically were the sacrifices made, remember, where the high priest would go in with the blood of an innocent sacrifice into not just the holy place but into the holy of holies that sacred place behind the veil where the ark of the covenant was and he would actually one time a year one man go into that place where the shekinah kabod the presence and glory of god dwelt among the people and he would apply the blood of an innocent sacrifice there to make atonement once a year nationally 
for the sins of the people. Uh, and it was a day, therefore, when this took place. And again, we looked at this in Leviticus 16. Remember, we saw the pictures with the, the scapegoat and so forth and how all those things beautifully pictured Christ and the many different ways and how the high priest would go in and do this on this particular day. But it was a day of reflection, a day of repentance, where they were to pause and to reflect upon their spiritual condition. And it was a day nationally when the high priest would make atonement for the people's sins once a year. And of course, as we look at this, you know, Hebrews chapter 9 particularly just gives to us such great insights to remind us of the reality that through Christ... This process of every year the high priest had to go in again and again and apply the blood of the innocent sacrifice to temporarily appease the wrath of God against the nation for the sins that they committed. And Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus, who's the mediator of a much better covenant, our great high priest, with the blood of his own self, once for all, it says, went into that heavenly tabernacle and applied his blood and made atonement once for all to ob obtain eternal redemption. A, a one-time sacrifice that never be repeated that gives to us the assurance of that finished work that we now just put faith in and rely upon. Well, verse 12 then gives to us the third of these fall festivals, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. It says that on the 15th day of that same seventh month, so we have the first day, and then the 10th day, the Day of Atonement was observed, and then five days later on the 15th day of the seventh month, again, another holy convocation. So, so this was a great month, the seventh month. Not much work, a lot of worship. You know, that's my kind of month. <laughs> you know, all right, a lot, of, a lot of time off and a lot of time worshiping God and just being with God's people and eating. I mean, that, that's a, you can't get much better than that. No work, worship, and gorge yourself with God's people. Eat into your heart's contempt. It just was a great uh, month here, this seventh month, as they would assemble for these three different festivals or occasions. And this, again, the Feast of Tabernacles being described. No customary work, verse 12, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord for seven days. And again, the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three we know specifically mandatory required feasts, tabernacles, uh, Pentecost, Passover. These three were required by all Jewish males to attend. And the Feast of Tabernacles basically, in short, celebrated or commemorated God's preservation of them as they journeyed through the wilderness. And again, we've talked about this feast before, not to uh, belabor it rather than go on to other things. They would, during this feast, they would move outside of their dwellings. They would set up booths or small tabernacles, little lean-tos or structures, and they would live outside. It was like camping for a week, so probably the guys loved it, and probably all the gals hated this particular feast, potentially, because they would live outside in these sort of lean-to structures, somewhat under the stars, and it was just a reminder of how for 40 years, as we've been studying in the book of Numbers, that God, despite their disobedience even, was being gracious to them and sustaining them and supplying water from the rock and caring for them and, and you know just doing what he could to take care of them outside as they lived under the stars. And as they would live outside, they would reflect on the faithfulness of God and his preservation and his care for them. And as the children would ask, Dad, why are we, why are we living out? What, what is, why are we doing this? Why are we staying outside? And it was, again, that opportunity to instruct and explain, well, the reason why, son, is because for 40 years, 40 years, 
Though we had disobeyed God and failed God and did not trust Him and we had to still experience God's discipline, God was merciful to us and He was gracious to us and He sustained us in that wilderness season and He took care of us and He provided for us and did miracles on our behalf and it became an opportunity to educate and to explain to the children the ways of God and the goodness of God. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, and I won't bog you down with all the details, as you, as you read through verse 12 down uh, really through about verse 34, in this seven days there was a succession where each day they would offer one less bull. There were many different things that took place. But each day, that number would decrease. It was almost sort of a countdown towards the last day, which was referred to the eighth day as the great day, the, this sacred or very solemn day as it all culminated. Notice it says there, uh, on the first day, uh, you shall present a burnt offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 13, 13 young bulls, and then two rams, 14 lambs, the other animals, again in their first year. Look at verse 17. On the second day, you then presented 12 young bulls, and then still the two rams, and so forth, the other animals with the grain offerings and drink offerings. Verse 20, on the third day, 11 bulls. Uh, on the fourth day, verse 23, 10 bulls. On the fifth day, can you guess what it is by now? There, there you go, nine bulls. Somebody's paying attention. It's tough stuff to work through there. But, but look down in verse 35. Of course, this countdown was almost like a drum roll. You know, each day they would decrease one bull in the midst of that particular offering. But then on the eighth day, the culminating day, notice you shall have a sacred assembly. And you shall do no customary work. Again, you shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Interesting, on the last day, the seventh day, they offered seven bulls, seventh day, seven bulls. But then on the eighth day, God just requires one. And, and God reduces it now to one particular bull and the seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Verse 37, the grain offerings, the drink offerings together. Also, verse 38, the one goat is a sin offering besides, again, notice, the regular burnt offering and its grain offering and its drink offering. Now, for, for you and I, here's something interesting to take note of as we use the Old Testament to help us better understand the New Testament as we always should. This Feast of Tabernacles, one of the customs that took place in Israel when they would observe the Feast of Tabernacles is the people, as a part of that, with the priest, would go down to the pool of Siloam and together with a jar in these pitchers, they would fill these vessels with water. They would then bring them back up to the temple, the large pavement stones. If you've ever seen the large pavement stones, if you've been to Israel or seen pictures, and they would then pour out the water onto the pavement stones as an indication, again, of, of God's grace to them, how God brought water from the walk, rock, walk, rock as God satisfied their thirst and quenched their thirst in a, a very gracious way on this eighth day this sacred assembly the solemn day they would do the same routine only they would go down and the priest would not fill up the jug and they would silently all the other days they would be singing songs it was very festive they would be singing songs from Isaiah and the Psalms celebrating God's salvation on the eighth day it was sacred and it was solemn nobody said anything it was silent and they would walk up they would not get any water and then because of that the priest would then do the same thing as if he were dumping out the water but it was just a total silence and a reflection 
Now, John chapter 7 tells us, verses 37 and 38, this, and let me read it to you. John 7, 37 and 38 says, On the last day, the great day of the feast. That's referring to this eighth day. It was on that day, the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, as they were used to doing this, that Jesus stood up in the midst of that and cried out these words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So imagine what this was like as they went through this and as they dumped out in sort of just you know, an acting way without the real water coming out in the silence of that, part of that in that eighth day as they would do that, a part of that was a way of saying, yes, God has quenched our thirst, but there's something that we're still thirsting for. And that's Messiah. We're still thirsting for Messiah. There's something still missing. And imagine what that must have been like in the midst of that silence as they're going through this whole protocol and Jesus stands up in the midst of the silence and cries out on that day if any man thirsts let him come to me and drink identifying himself as the Messiah letting people know that the thirst that they had was something that he himself could satisfy by believing in him recognizing him as the Messiah and boy what a wonderful thing that, that Jesus would identify himself that way and indicate that there is a thirst a spiritual thirst that exists in everybody that nothing and no one can fill but Jesus alone Look, I mean, look at our world. You know, people are thirsty and they are drinking from the pools and the wells of all kinds of stagnant things. Whether it's substance abuse, whether it's relationships, whether it's money or greed or success or fame or fulfillment. And, and people are just, I mean, tapping out every well on the planet. Would you agree? I mean, I drank from plenty of them before I came to Jesus. Because we realize there's a thirst within us. There's something within us that's thirsty. And, and we're thirsting for something. And so we drink from everything under the sun. You know, friendships, relationships, and, and activity, and pleasures, and fulfillment. And we try everything. And we, why am I still thirsty? Because the only thing that can satisfy that spiritual thirst is not a physical thing. It's not a temporal thing. It's not any other person. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Only Jesus, just like he spoke to that woman in the well, John chapter 4, can meet that spiritual thirst. And you know what? I would say this evening, if you find yourself a bit dissatisfied, the answer may not be that complicated. It may be just a little more Jesus. Because no person, no pursuit, no experience, nothing can satisfy that inward thirst that's inside every one of us other than Jesus himself to drink from the well of his living water. And the wonderful thing is Jesus said, as you drink in of that, it's not just something to quench your thirst, but then he, in that same passage said, and out of your heart will overflow like rivers of living water to then splash forth and to then satisfy and help quench the thirst of others as you bring Christ by the Spirit to other people as well. Verse 39, he then concludes saying, These you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feasts, notice, besides 
your vowed offerings and your free will offerings as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings as your drink offerings and your peace offerings and so Moses told the children of Israel everything just as the Lord commanded Moses so again these were what they were to do at the appointed times but that did not include that they could voluntarily make free will offerings that they could voluntarily give free will offerings the idea is that these were prescribed offerings and sacrifices but if they out of love and devotion wanted to bring an offering to God personally out of worship or gratitude or to celebrate God's goodness or to just spend time with God uh, they could do that whenever they wanted to as well these were just the scheduled prescribed times and you know what boy let me just I think that's a good thing that God realizes it's good at times to have the free freedom to you know in in spontaneous impulsive Lord I just want to spend time with you I want to worship you I want to spend time with you that's that's good but it is also good to have the discipline of appointed spiritual times where we make time for God oh that's so legal no listen God's no it's a good thing God knows humanity. He knows what we're like. And so God gave them purposely to help them in their worship life prescribe times and said, honor these times. You need these times. You need to set aside prescribed times. Again, they could do whatever they wanted as well in their worship of God on other occasions, voluntarily and free will offerings. But God gave them a discipline of a spiritual life to help regulate them because like sheep, we're prone to wander. And so we need that. And so God built this into their life. And it is a good, good thing that God builds that into our lives, that we realize the value and the benefit of scheduled occasions to be committed to worship God and spend time with God, as well as having spontaneous times where we choose to spend time with the Lord or worship or seek Him in some way. Well, having just spoken about vowed offerings or making vows, he then goes on to address that in this interesting 30th chapter here he talks particularly about the subject of vows he says chapter 30 verse 1 then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel saying notice this is the thing which the Lord has commanded if verse 2 notice take notice that word is key if if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement he shall not break his word he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So God now begins to address this issue of making vows, making vows to the Lord, making vows of agreement, business transactions, or dedicating something or making some vow or binding agreement from man to man. And uh, notice verse two, very first word, he says, if a man makes a vow. That's important because again, vows were not required by God. We don't see God ever mandating people to make vows. You could make vows. You could do the Nazarite vow. Remember, we looked at that a number of chapters back, but that was a voluntary thing. They weren't required to make vows to God, but God said, but when you make a vow, then you need to fulfill it. Then you need to keep it. God being a covenant-keeping God, a God who honors his word, a God of faithfulness and a God of integrity and truth, God honors his promise and fulfills his word, what he speaks, his hand brings to pass, and as people who represent God, notice God is serious about commitments. God's serious about promises. So God says, look, you don't have to make vows ever, but if you make a vow, if you make some commitment, God says, you swear an oath I love what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, 
you know, that there's the goodness of a man who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And sometimes it's hard to keep an oath. But God wants us to reflect him and God wants us to be people of integrity and people who understand the value of commitment and promises. And he wants us to be people who when we make a vow or swear an oath or we bind ourselves to some agreement that we fulfill that that we honor it, that we represent the Lord, which, which teaches us some important things. That first of all, we should be people who keep our word, especially as God's people. God forbid. We live in a world where people keeping their word means nothing anymore. Whether it's vocationally or politically or you know, it, relationally, I mean, people keeping their word m- means absolutely nothing to them in today's day and age. But as God's people who understand the type of God that we represent, a God who is faithful and true and righteous and just, we should be a people as his children who keep our word. That if we say that we're going to do something, we make a promise or a commitment, certainly there should be something different about us in our marriages, in our business transactions. If we make a financial commitment, we should keep our financial commitment. If we make a relational commitment, we should honor a relational commitment. If we make a vow or a commitment to the Lord, we should say, Lord, I, I want to fulfill that. I committed to doing that. Lord, I said that I would do that and that we would walk that out in faithfulness by God's grace and be people of integrity. Again, Jesus ultimately says in the New Testament, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And the idea of that from Jesus' perspective was, listen, it shouldn't even be necessary for you to make a vow. You should just be such a person of your word that you don't need to say, I swear to God, I swear to God, I swear to God, I'll do it. Or, or somebody says, look, I, I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth here. Whenever somebody says that, I always think to myself, well, if you're swearing to God to tell me the truth now, does that mean everything else you say is a lie then? You're swearing to God to tell the truth now, so everything else has been a lie then? Again, we, we should be people of integrity and honesty in such a way that When we say yes, yes is yes. And yes is going to remain yes. And if we say no, no is no. And it's going to remain no. And I'll tell you this. There's an occasion to recognize that sometimes the most valuable word you can even learn as a Christian is how to say no to people. If you can't learn to say no, you're going to be violating this area all the time and you're going to become an extreme people pleaser. It's okay at times to make, and not say, well, let me pray about it. Well, let me be honest. No. You see what I'm saying? Because as Christians, we do that. Well, let me pray about that, bro. I mean, let me think about that. When the reality is, the answer is just no. We're just beating around the bush to say it. It's okay to say no. God says no. And there's a time when no is the right response, whether it's because it's clearly unbiblical or unethical or unspiritual or just because the answer is no and and we have a free will you can say no you have the right to do that and so there's a yes to be yes and a no to be no and Jesus says look just have an honest heart of integrity be someone who keeps your word and I think this reminds us of this well is that therefore we should be careful what we commit to understanding this we should be careful what we do promise don't promise something too quickly If you're thinking about something, then maybe you need to pray and really think it through before you commit to it. Because once you commit, you should fulfill that commitment, God says. That's how I want you to live. So therefore, we need to be careful. Read the book of Proverbs, chapter 20 and other places. speaks about not being rash, 
not being impulsive and hasty in our commitments and our decisions, but really taking things seriously because we realize the value of integrity. So here, God says, he shall not break his word, verse 2, but do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, having given that injunction of the importance of God about you know, keeping our vows, he then goes on to speak more about this. And interesting here, makes this gracious provision honoring the authority of the home life, honoring God's order and authority, not wanting that to be violated, which is such a beautiful thing that God has a way of doing things, but yet he always does them in such a way that one thing he does doesn't contradict another thing he does. And you'll see as we read through this now, God says, look, if a vow is made, it needs to be kept. But God understands, well, look, but I also need to safeguard and preserve the order of the home and the family life the way I've designed it as God to work best. So God creates a way to do that. And we see that here in our next verses. Look at verse three. He says, or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement, notice, while in her father's house in her youth. So this is referring to a daughter still under the roof of her father, still under the covering and the authority of her home, still a child. She's not living independent yet. She's still under the authority of her father's household and roof. If she makes a vow while in that stage of life, verse 4, and her father hears about that vow, he becomes aware of that vow, and the agreement by which she has made to bind herself, verse 4, and her father holds his peace, in other words, he doesn't say anything about it, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But, verse 5, if her father overrules her on the day that he hears about that, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand. The Lord, verse 5, will release her because her father, the covering authority in her life, has overruled her. So God puts this provision in for the young daughter still living under the roof of the home, still under the covering of her father's authority to help her, to protect her, living in that stage of life where if a young daughter made a vow, and again, keep in mind, that vow could potentially, uh, in some senses, obligate her father. It could make him become liable as the father. So if he heard about the vow, and if the vow was something that he felt like, well, that's okay, and you know, I'm okay with that, and I'm comfortable with it, then if he said nothing, if he held his peace, then that indicated, okay, I'm okay with that vow, and he endorsed it, in a sense, by his silence, and it indicated consent. But if for some reason the father having heard the vow that the daughter made, in some way felt like mm, you know, that could risk the family's welfare or that might not be good for her, he in his loving wisdom and protective wisdom could overrule and could nullify the vow. And it says that if the father did that as a steward on her behalf, that the agreements or vows did not stand, verse 5 says, and the Lord would release her. That young girl would be released from the obligation if the father said that he did not think it was wise and the father was responsible, the Bible is showing, for what happened under the roof. And I think that's something that we need to remember as fathers. We're responsible for what happens under our roofs. We're responsible. We're responsible to be aware of what's going on in our children's lives and we're accountable and responsible as the father in the home. And here this father, exercising authority, was able to overrule. God made this provision. Now notice verse 6, the same thing also applied in the marriage relationship. He says, if indeed she takes a husband 
while bound by her vows. So she's maybe already made vows and then she marries someone. If she takes a husband while bound by her vows or if she makes notice a rash utterance from her lips to purchase the brand new car. No, it wouldn't happen, would it? Uh, by which she bound herself and her husband hears it. My wife's never done that, by the way. That was a joke. I, I promise you. In all integrity. And I wouldn't lie. <laughs> Verse 7, and her husband hears it and makes no response. Again, if he says nothing to her on that day that he hears, then her vows shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. So again, if the husband had no concern about the vow, he didn't think it was going to have a detrimental effect on the marriage or be harmful to her as his wife. Uh, you know, He didn't need to micromanage every area of his life if he had no qualms with it. Again, they're communicating, he's aware, then his silence indicated that he consented and he was fine with it. Verse 8, but notice God puts the same provision in to honor the role of the husband as the head in the home maritally in the same way that the daughter was under the father's covering. Notice there's a transition that happens when she goes from the father's covering to now her husband's covering. God's design. Paul speaks of the husband being the head of the wife in the marriage. So here, if the husband hears, the husband, verse 8, can overrule her on the day that he hears it. He shall make void her vow by which she took and what she uttered by her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord, again, notice, will release her. So in the same way here, as the father with the daughter, the husband's authority or covering, uh, again, picked up in the marriage relationship, and the husband was to listen. The husband was to be aware of what was going on in his wife's life. Not to be living two separate lives and doing his thing and clueless what she's doing and what the, he was to be integrated in her life in such a way that he was aware of these things. And he was uh, privy to decisions she was making and was involved with her life. And here we see that the husband had that same authority that if he felt it was going to be detrimental to her or that the judgment was not exercised in a good way, then he had the authority in the marriage to overrule the vow and say, you know what, I, I can't give consent to that. And God released the wife from it. She was then released from it. It was no longer an obligation and the husband, if he needed to, could do that to protect the welfare of the marriage or the family if he didn't agree with the commitment or the vow or oath in some way that she had bound herself to. And it says the Lord would release in that sense. Verse 10, if she vowed, uh, excuse me, verse 9, if anyone was a widow or a divorced woman, so she doesn't have a father or a husband as a covering in that stage of life, and she's bound herself, that shall stand against her. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement, verse 10, with an oath, and her husband heard it, and no response was made to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand. Every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day that he heard them, that seems to indicate prior to the divorce or prior to his death, again, if what proceeded from her lips concerning the vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will release her. So very similar principle. Look at verse 13 down through verse 16 now, how this kind of concludes. It says, Every vow... And every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void, exercising his authority in the marriage. Now, if her husband makes no response whatsoever to her from the day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. 
He confirms them. Why? Because he made no response to her on the day that she heard them. In other words, God's saying that silence, from God's perspective, was consent. So God said, if you're detached and you're passive and you're not involved and you don't exercise your role and take serious your responsibility, then God says your silence indicates consent. So if the husband did not say anything and did not have any level of involvement, then God says then, then it stood. Verse 15, but if he does make them void after he has heard them, now watch this, then he shall bear, what's that say? Her guilt. These statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife and between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. Now I want you to notice this. It says there in verse 15 that the reason this authority was given was it also was attached to the fact that God says the one I hold responsible in that home is the person that I gave authority to in that home. So the father was responsible for what happened under his roof and the husband was responsible, it says here, verse 15, even for the guilt of his wife. So here God says, look, this is a serious thing. And boy, I, I look at this and look, I understand somebody looking at this, oh, that's so chauvinistic. That's so chauvinistic. Look, I would say this. I look at that and I think, man, the blessing of being a daughter or being a wife is very simply this. You could be released from the pressure of carrying responsibility. I wish somebody would give me that in my life. You mean I don't ever have to ultimately be responsible for my decisions that ultimately the buck stops somewhere else and I can just live free and liberated. I can make my decisions. But if they're wrong, ultimately the buck don't drop on me. That don't sound like a bad thing. That to me sounds like a very liberating thing, a very wonderful thing. There was a way of release where there was a provision where that daughter under the covering of her father and the wife under the covering of her husband's authority in the way God ordered the family did not have to carry the stress of the ultimate decision. She did not have to bear on her shoulders the weight of what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do. And even if she was wrong, God gave a way of release for her. If your husband listens to it and he says, nah, I, I, we need to know, then she was released from it and she didn't have to carry the guilt of, I made a bad vow. Oh, that was poor judgment and now I'm responsible. God released her from it. God gave her this gracious release as a daughter, as a wife. There's something really nice about not having to bear final authority. Now, as we look at this passage here, I can't help but to think how this hearkens in some ways all the way back to what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Again, God said if you're silent to the husband, he says that's considered consent. But God also says here in verse 15, you ultimately are going to bear her guilt for her decision. And if you think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, I want you to think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. How did the fall of man happen? It says that Eve took from the tree, she ate, and then she gave to her husband. She took, she partook, and then she gave to her husband. And what did he do? He silently consented. He didn't say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? He passively, silently consented. And they inverted the roles and the ways in which God ordered for the family the function and here we are suffering 2,000 years later. 
as a fallen creation. Call it chauvinistic or call it God creates an order in his love. It has nothing to do with equality. It has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. It has to do with God is a God of order. He creates an order for the family institution. He creates an order for the marriage institution in a way to safeguard and protect. And the very thing God describes here is the very thing that was violated back in Genesis chapter 3. It was the passivity and the silence and the uninvolvement of a husband that contributed to his wife just taking matters into her own hands and did what? She kind of made a bad agreement with the devil. She kind of entered into a dialogue and partook of something that she shouldn't have because she was in the steering wheel and the husband didn't exercise his role to be involved and to speak up and to take the leadership role that God wanted him to take. Now, as we look at this chapter here in the Bible it should not be something that we escape the picture. Again, keep in mind, as we said, low in the volume of the book, it's written of me. All of the scripture wants to point to us something about Jesus. And I look at this passage, Genesis chapter 30, and I think, man, what a beautiful picture God lays out. We look at it and think, oh, I don't really like that vow chapter. Well, no worries. There's only one of them in the whole Bible. Okay, It'll be 15 years to even have to look at it again, if we're still here. But I want you to see this picture. God refers to us spiritually as what? Children. God's our father and we're children under his authority. Jesus refers to us as the church as what? His bride. He's the husband and he's the groom. And look at this beautiful picture here. The father in heaven at times relating to us as spiritual children he may overrule sometimes when he sees something that's not good in your life. Thank goodness for that. Thank goodness that the Father in heaven has authority and way more wisdom and love than we do. And at times, he may overrule on our behalf for our benefit in such a way that if we get ourselves into something and make plans, he may sometimes say, you know what? As your father, I'm going to exercise my authority. I'm going to overrule. Jesus, at times, as our loving groom, may overrule on our behalf when necessary to protect us because he has much better judgment than we do. And he has much more wisdom. And in love for us, sometimes he may exercise his authority and overrule. Well, Lord, but I'm not... Nah, I'm your husband here. Tony, I'm going to overrule. I'm going to overrule. And here's the most marvelous thing of all. What does verse 15 say? He shall still bear... The husband bore her guilt. And here's the wonderful thing. Ultimately, as children and as the bride of Christ, we err, we make mistakes, we make poor judgments, we make plans and pursuits that are off target, and, and, and the Lord overrules. But listen, who still bears the guilt for when we make mistakes? The Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ. He bears our guilt. He says, you make the mistakes, I overrule, but you're still guilty but since I'm your authority, I'll take the guilt. I'll take the guilt that belongs to you. And so God the Father, through his son Jesus Christ, absorbs the guilt. And the Bible says, Isaiah 53, God lays on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Man, that's a marvelous plan. 